Father, we acknowledge that um, you are in our midst right now. We acknowledge that you brought us all here, that there's no accidental um, attendance in some way that, you know, Father, you, you knew we were going to be here. That we ourselves are not an accident. Jesus, we know as we talk about um, relationships, particularly as we start talking about, about sex, that there's all kinds of hang-ups and baggage. We know that people, Father, walk into this place with stories of shame. We know that people walk in here um, with stories of, of condemnation and of fear. And Jesus, um, whatever that story might be, would we be um, open to the reality that you love us so deeply, that you call us your children, those who would belong to you, and that you're actively at work rescuing people, not just once, but all the time, that you are at work presently in this moment to restore and to rebuild what has been broken. Father, might we live in a place without, just even in this moment, might we live in the reality that there is no shame to being here, and that there are no preconditions to walking into your presence. And so, Jesus, um, as we do customarily, we'll just pause and ask that you would speak to us the power of your spirit, that we would have a knowledge and an understanding of your great presence, that you are at work, and that you have the power to restore beyond what we can imagine. So we give you a moment to hear from you, Jesus. Today, Father, we get a better picture of your love for us, a greater sense of what you um, intend to do with our lives, with our broken lives, and how you are so tender with us, and that you can be trusted, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to be uh, in a couple different places here. Mainly we'll be in John chapter 4. I'm going to dance around a little bit. Mostly I'll be in John chapter 4. If you want to turn in your own Bible, you want to turn on your digital version of whatever Bible you're following, or you want to look at the screen, or if you want to follow along, there's an outline in your bulletin, you can pull that out, and you might want to take some notes today. I do want to tell you again, this is um, when I'm, for today, we're going to talk about some stuff that sets up next week a lot, so you're going to be like, well, this didn't wrap up with a bow, and I need to wrap up with a bow. It won't wrap up with a bow, just want to let you know right now. Next week, I'm not sure if it'll be a bow, but it'll be wrapped up a little bit more tidily. They'll probably, this is a discussion we could have over the course of seven or eight weeks. We don't have time for that. So um, I just want to give you a sense of what's going to happen today, and we'll go into next week. So um, there you go. Um, this, um, you know, my, my youngest, um, his name's Scotty. Uh, he is five years old, and um, he has a, um, he, like, I found this to be true of all of my kids, but him, mo- like, to the nth degree, some of you recognize this either, you know, your own kids, you've been around nieces or nephews or cousins or whatever, but there's like the kids, little kids have like a, a, they only have an on-off switch. There's no like gradual buildup, you know, particularly with, with, my, with my youngest, with Scotty. It's like where there's nothing and then there's everything. And that's good and bad. Like, um, I, I'm, I, you know, hey, great, it's, it's Christmas. And it's like, ah, great. Or there's like, you know, there's this other instance where this didn't go well. There's no, I'm, I'm disappointed I feel disappointed, hurt, sad, and angry. My feelings are coming up. I wanted you to know, Mom, here they come. It's like, bam! I mean, he is just all, all over it. So he, um, he's, uh, we're at our house, and he goes, uh, he goes, he goes, I'm thirsty. And it's not like I'm thirsty, like I really want something to drink. It's like explosion of, like, pain and sorrow. And do you know what's happening to me, Dad, Mom? There is thirst everywhere. 
And there's only one thing that will satisfy my thirst at this moment. What is it, Scotty? I want grape juice. I want gra- and it's like, okay, you know, we have grape juice. And so I go into the, I, you know, we're at that age too, five years old, we're kind of at that age, like, how much should he do on his own? Like, you know where the refrigerator is, buddy, you get it. But grape juice, you're like, I don't have time if you spill that. I mean, I really, just, I'm handling this. You get the cup you want. Of course, you get some giant glass chalice or something. Here. Uh, no, you know, and then, well, no, why? And then, of course, you have the whole other fight. It's, this is literally every morning, every time there's a juice incident. This is what, how it goes down. So he, we finally finds a plastic cup, and I go into the refrigerator, see if you connect with this at all. Guys, you might connect with this. I'm not sure anybody else would. But I uh, go into the refrigerator, and there is, <laughs> there is the, the grape juice, you know, canister, whatever, the little bottle. And on top of it, it's totally empty. And on top of it has been placed the cap by my oldest son. Just like there's an empty, a completely empty juice bottle and a cap placed on top of it. <laughs> like, wait, a, okay, we're working on replacing the cap. That's good. Well done. It needs to be screwed on there, but probably on a bottle that has something in it. Because now i got to turn to my five-year-old who's going to burst into flames when I say, there's no grape juice. I want grape juice. we got milk and water. What do you want? I want grape juice. I mean, it's just the terror begins and the biting and the screaming and the lighting stuff on fire. But that's all. I mean, what he's got in his mind is there is one way that my thirst will be satisfied. And if I can't have it, everything will come unglued. And there it is, I have to tell him, okay, start the ungluing process because we have nothing for you that you really want. Because nothing else in his mind will satisfy. Now, when we talk about sex, talk about sex in our, it has a beautiful mess component as a part of our culture. It is one of those things that has a, an intensity, a desire, an appetite that tends to lend people to find it without any sort of regard for what else happens. And generally when people are seeking it in our world, they find themselves to be whatever version of sexual fulfillment that they find, they find it to be insufficient. I have a need and I want it and the world gives it to me and it's still not enough. And so when we talk today about sex, I want to frame it in the, at least under that umbrella of thirst, of an appetite, of a longing, of something like that. Does that make sense? So check this out. We're in John chapter 4. This is a famous passage. If you've been in the church before, you've heard this passage. If you haven't, this is like one of the, one of the quintessential stories of Jesus But here's what's happening in in John chapter 4. It says Jesus is walking here and he has this incident at a well. Here it is, John 4, verse 4. Now he had to go, meaning Jesus had to go through Samaria. Let me stop right there. There is no no going through Samaria. People don't do that. Jews do not travel through there. They go around it. Even if it takes a significantly longer amount of time, they just don't go through that area. The Samaritans are people who during the 6th century, the Babylonians invade, kick all the Jews out. And the Samaritans are Jews who stuck around, intermarried with some other people that weren't Jews, and they, which, are, which is the conquering army, you know, and some other people, and they end up forming this little group of people that live in this little place. Now, everybody else, all the Jews regard those people as, not only are they sort of, they don't really have much tolerance for biracial people, but they also have very little tolerance for people that they perceive to be traitors. These people sold out their own, everybody else got kicked out and you stayed and tried to make it okay. Everybody who's Jewish hates Samaritans. With me? Okay, here we go. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. 
It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is by himself. Let me just tell you what's happening. Jesus is by himself talking to a woman. Now this is like, the way in which men talked to women was through the husband. The, the, that woman's, the, the, the dominant man in their life, which would have been their father or their husband. So you don't just go up to a woman and start talking, especially because she's by herself and Jesus is by himself too. Already we've entered into the scandalous world of Jesus' ministry right here, okay? Um, the woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews, there's the parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The literal translation of that little parenthetic statement right there is Jews do not use the dishes of Samaritans. They're so unclean, we can't use their dishes. And Jesus is asking, can you help me get a drink? Which means i got to use your dishes. Because she's even saying, hey, don't Jews not use Samaritans' dishes? She's, usually, she's like identifying the stereotype and just going right at it. But he's saying, can you give to me some water? Which means i got to use your dishes. i got to use your stuff. A couple other things you got to know. He's talking with a woman, which is, of course, scandalous. It's in Samaria, already scandalous. People didn't even travel through there because there was like a reputation for robbers and thieves and all kinds of stuff going through there. But there's this other thing. It's at noon. The conversation is happening with a woman by herself, already scandalous. At noon, if you're in this time in the ancient Near East and you had to get water for your family for the day, you would do it in one of two times. Early morning or early evening? Which means if you're going there in the middle of the day at noon, it's because nobody else wants to be around you. It's the only time which you can go because this is generally a task that women would take care of. The women would gather in the morning and they would be together and have this sort of interaction. And there isn't that for this woman. She's not allowed to be with them. She's got a story. We haven't even gotten to her story yet, but she's got a story. Immediately readers of this story would have known. She's, ooh, man. She's going there at noon by herself. Nobody wants to be around her. This is a person who has some kind of reputation that is being lived out in her solitary walk every day to go get water by herself in the hottest part of the day. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, was, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Meaning his first question is kind of a trick. You know, can you give me some water? Well, he's already setting, he's setting up this question right here. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw, to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also did his sons and his livestock? Now, the word living water, it's kind of like, um, the word living water is kind of a, a different, we, we automatically probably look at it and start putting in spiritual meaning for it, which is true. But when they said the phrase living water in the ancient world, it referred to water that was literally running, like moving water, like a creek, something like where there's actual motion in the water. There's plenty of water in things like cisterns where people would hold water in case they needed it for irrigation and things like that. But that water is different. That's a different kind of water. Jesus says, I have living water. Living water is the kind of water you use for people who have become ritually unclean to be bathed in so that they can be part of the religious and social life of the community. You can't use still water. You can't use stagnant water to wash someone, to bathe them. You have to use living water. In other words, if someone is drinking, not drinking, if someone is bathed in living water, they have access, again, to all of the temple life and the community life together. Jesus says, I have some living water. And she kind of misses the analogy or misses the wording that she's like, okay, well, um, there's no 
you don't have a, you know, you don't have a bucket, how will you get this living water? But what he's basically saying is the water that you have, the water you have access to, Jacob's well, great well, love the well, great job, Jacob. That water can only satisfy one layer of the thirst that your soul needs, and it's the most physical one, the actual thirst. In other words, this water right here is insufficient for the bigger picture of your life. You need something else. Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says this again in John chapter 7. You know, this is like kind of a theme. There's water, it's living, I give it, and you never have to thirst again. There is thirst about like, I really need grape juice kind of thirst, and then there's this other thirst that our soul is looking for. And we see it evidenced in the way people chase after sexual intimacy in the world. I am so thirsty. I'm dying of thirst. I need something to satisfy the parched emptiness of my own soul. Sex seems to be one of the most accessible ways we do that. But here's what not being thirsty really means for this woman. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, on the one hand, of course, she's not understanding totally what he's saying. But on the one hand, what she's saying is, it's going to be so much more convenient for me to not have to do this. I just have the water. I never thirst. I don't have to leave. Sorry for everybody else, but I'm not thirsty anymore. That's great. There's that. That's practical. It's good. But there's another part of this, too. See, the reason why she doesn't want to have to keep coming back to get water isn't because it's a hassle. It's because every single day she walks in the heat of the day. Every single step she's reminded, you're not one of us. You've done some stuff and we all know about it and you have to be by yourself because nobody wants to be around you. And every single day she walks to the well in the heat of the day and pulls out this water and puts it in a bucket and walks it back home. Every step reminding her, every day being reminded, you're an outcast. Nobody wants you. It's not just the hassle of coming back to the well. It's the reality that she lives in, which is you are a shameful person. And you can't be around us because you pollute us. That's why you go by yourself. That's why this living water makes such a difference to her. You never have to come back here again and be reminded of that every single day. Verse 16. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your own husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Prophet, just simply, the the simplest definition of a word prophet is a word meaning, it just simply means like revealer of hidden things. It's not just, we typically use it just about someone who can tell us about the future. That's a prophet. But a prophet reveals hidden things. God has something for people, tells them, reveals it. This is the kind of thing. So she says about Jesus, you're a prophet. Now Jesus goes and starts talking about some real thirst here. Here's a woman who's had five marriages and she's she's with another man now who is not her husband. This is a person who is so relationally thirsty. This is a person dying for intimacy, dying for closeness, dying for connection, and will keep choosing over and over again now in, in our society. We talk about someone who has lots of marriages, you know, where they're kind of, you know, they're Joan Collins, they're, you know, Elizabeth Taylor. It's kind of like, it's, it's like tabloid 
kind of hilariousness, like, oh, she got married again, or whatever it was. Which is kind of a weird thing. We're kind of like, that's sort of, we're kind of put off by that maybe a little bit. But in the first century, if you continue to have divorces and remarriages over and over and over again in a, in a communal culture, you're publicly shaming and reshaming yourself over and over and over again. And not only that, you're shaming people that are connected with those. I mean, it is like you are a scourge. You're, I mean, there is like all kinds of stuff attached to this. And there she's with someone else who isn't her husband, which means the only person who would be with her in this scenario, well, that's someone who's willing to use her. That's someone who's willing to take what she's willing to give to them. Let me back up a little bit. Jesus, this gives us a glimpse of Jesus, the nature of Jesus' associations. You know, right here you have Jesus. You know, he, he reveals to her all of what she already knows. He explains to her what's happening right there. He's talking about thirst, just to recap a little bit. He's talking about a living water, soul-level kind of thirst. And, she's t- and he goes in to tell her, you've got all these relationships. I know about them. And there's... He reveals something that's incredibly personal. I mean, it's devastating. It's shaming. I mean, it's what everybody knows, but nobody talks about with her. But she doesn't retreat from it. Somehow or another, what Jesus is doing here is what we talked about last week. If you're with us, this idea of being able to hold the most sacred vulnerability of another person and not exploit it. All of the other men in her life that are significant have held her vulnerability, her emotional and physical nakedness, and it's been exploited because they keep cycling through. Here's Jesus who holds her emotional vulnerability, the most shaming thing in her life, and holds it right there. She doesn't run away. And here's Jesus, you know, this person who's with a person who, Jesus is with a woman who has a reputation Everybody knows it. In fact, it's the most indicting thing about Jesus' ministry is that he continues to insist on being around people who are notorious sinners. He keeps walking into these relationships with people who are known in the community as people who have bad reputations, people who are ripping off their own people, thieves and prostitutes. This is who Jesus continues to hang out with. He walks right into relationship with people who are outside of God's preferred life for them. In other words, there is a way in which God intends for people to live. And the people Jesus runs to are the people who are most clearly outside of that life. Jesus has his presence. God's presence in Jesus is among those people who do not dwell in God's preference. Say that again. Jesus' presence is in and among people who are living outside of God's preference. That is so frustrating for the religious leaders of the time. How could he possibly do that? So there's this woman, this social outcast, this religious outcast, which is basically the same thing at the time. They're publicly shamed. And Jesus, as I look at this story just for a moment, I want us to contextualize this woman a little bit more. This woman's really us. She's a woman who's searching for dignity... She's longing for intimacy, and she's willing to be naked with a number of people, but she's not really willing to be known. She's naked with people, but not vulnerable with people. Or maybe, another way to say it is, she's fully vulnerable and fully naked, and she's just continuing to be exploited. But that's all she knows. I think for us, 
we have this sense. Maybe another way to put it is this. Here's this woman who in the absence of really good and whole and healthy relationships will choose any relationship because that's simply better than being alone. We have a thirst inside of us. It manifests itself sometimes in sexual acting out, but it is a thirst for relational intimacy. And here's this woman, scandalized by this, by her life. She has a reputation, and only man, like I said, who would be around her would be someone who's willing to use her. And some of us go, you know what? In this room, we go, I'm that woman. I mean, literally, I have sought out intimacy with people, and I have given up so much of my vulnerability to other people, and they have trashed it. I have been physically naked. I have been emotionally naked with people and they have not held that to be sacred at all and I can't figure out why I keep being treated this way. Some of you are in that place in this room. It is the loneliest, most difficult that people would use and exploit us. And others of us in this room, on the other side, we've been on the exploiting side. Nobody, you know, you may not have been, I mean, some, everybody, all parties were in agreement about what happened, but there was a lot of seeing how what I could get from someone else. They were vulnerable and I knew it and I took from them. I have an appetite. It needed to be satisfied. We're on both ends of the spectrum. And God's grace is big enough for both ends of the spectrum. And here's God, his presence in and among someone who lives outside of his preference for their lives. You know, we talked last week about this fear of nakedness, this fear, this, this vulnerability, and yet we live in a world so overwhelmingly convinced that the best thing we ought to do is be naked with people, but not really truly known by them. Over and over again, we hear this message. We trust people who are capable of holding our nakedness, but not our real nakedness. You know, we have... Um, I think maybe one way to talk about it is that we have a, a, um, we have a need to be naked, but we're not naked enough. We're naked in the idea that we're able to share so much. The culture says, if you could just have a little bit more of other people's nakedness, the deeper thirst of your soul would be met. And there's still this other nakedness that people will never know because we're too afraid. What would happen if they really knew the real us? So we'll just be naked with them, but not truly vulnerable. We're longing for relational intimacy. We're longing for connection. And sex is an indicator of that idea. But why do we keep making these choices this way? I mean, as a human beings, why do we keep doing this? It's not like this is brand new. Like everybody's like, you know, in the past 20 years, there's a new, you know, there's maybe some different ways it's expressed. But this is, for centuries, people think about this. And they look, they look and search for intimacy in physical relationships without really getting into the real depth of the real need and the real thirst in their lives. Ancient people built, built worship around it, around sex. You know, people would show up and there would be temple prostitutes, which were basically the same thing as temple priests. And you pay them and you have sex with them. It's a wonderful worship experience. You can laugh, it's okay. There was, this, there was a very formalized, we're worshiping the sexual experience. And then now, because we're so different, we don't have that anymore. <laughs> Let me tell you what worship is. It is anything around which you orient your entire life. It is the thing which you think about 
the thing that you spend towards, the thing that occupies your thoughts, the thing that occupies your conversation, the thing that makes you, makes you, it's the motivation for getting up and going to sleep. It's the thing that makes, that just drives every single thing. It's the thing behind everything else. That's what you worship. The conversations about, the wondering about, the fantasy about something, well, that's all rehearsing the worship of sex. There's something something about sex that's not just physical. There's a relational component to it. And every society in all of the world has this, th- this idea where it says, you know, if you're married, I mean, virtually every society has this. If you've identified yourself as being a, in, in some kind of oneness relationship with another person, a sexual relationship with, a, with one person in marriage, it's not just physical if you decide to just go out and have sex with someone else. That there's some relational bond that's made and to go and have that with other people violates something about marriage. It's not just physical. There's something that's happening with people when they share the sexual experience. And yet the world keeps saying it's just, it's just physical. It's just, it's just sex. Really, it's part of our natural being. I mean, really, it's just sex. What's the big deal? But every, but we know it's not just sex. We know there's something so much deeper than just that. But maybe sex points us to something else. Maybe it identifies that we see a culture longing for something. We live in a world where people are longing to find something that they can get their arms around that makes them feel alive, that gives them some kind of moment of transcendence. And sex may be the best, closest thing we can find. But why is that? Look at this. I'm going to show you Psalm 8, verse 3. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, When I consider your heaven, speaking to God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them, you have made them a little lower than the angels. Let me stop right there. Now, you have to understand, here's the frame of reference. There's human beings who are living and moving and doing whatever we're doing, and the frame of reference here is There are angels who have some role, and we're not them. The Bible says about talking about angels, that this is in Hebrews chapter 1. Angels are ministering spirits. That they care for people, but they don't have a body. I mean, they can manifest themselves in a body. We see that every so often in the scripture. But they primarily are living as spirits, meaning they have a consciousness and an awareness they can contemplate and act upon spiritual reality, but they don't have a body. And the psalmist here says, you, us human beings, are just, we're lower than the angels. Then he goes on to say, verse 6, you have made them, meaning human beings, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. And it keeps going with more things in the Psalms. almost the end. So we are lower than angels and we're above animals. Lower than angels, above the animals. Because... It's not that we just have a sort of spiritual component of our lives. In fact, this is actually a problem in the, early, in the early church. People are like, we're just spiritual beings. The physical doesn't matter. And it's like, no, 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 no. Paul keeps saying, the apostle Paul keeps saying, no, no, no. You have a, you, your whole body is a spiritual, physical combination. And they are linked together. 
They are not separated out. They are linked together. We're above the animals, lower than the angels. We have a spiritual consciousness. We have an awareness. We can contemplate things. We can wonder things. We have a soul. But we also have a body. Some of you grew up in a church where essentially when people started talking about sex, and we're going to get more into this next week, a little bit more specific about some of these things. You grew up in a church or you, maybe you're new to church, but you had a fear about church, which said, the church is just going to tell me to stop having a body, essentially. I have desires, and I have, my body wants to do some things. And you heard at some point in your church life, or maybe something you imagine the church would say is, stop having a body. Stop wanting stuff, stop having desires or appetites. Stop it. We don't talk about it. We're not going to deal with it. We're going to bury it. We're just going to push it down because that's all that we can do because we just want you to act as if you are just barely, I mean, you're just, you're a floating angel that happens to have this husk around them. Some of you were told that. In fact, I, I honestly, when I was a, like when I was in, you know, junior high and high school and, you know, in church and whatever, I, we were always, always, we were like praying, God, could you just, could you give us, like, turn off our, our body? Could we just, like, somehow or another, could, I mean, essentially, we're praying, God, when I get married, can you turn that switch back on? But for now, can you turn it off? Because we don't know what to do with this. And all of us would pray something like that. And it was like, well, that's not going to happen. God has given you a body. And it has also this other part of it, which is this soul component. And the world says to us, you are just animals. You're just animals. Here's what animals do. Animals have desires, and they go, they go satisfy them. They don't, they don't have deep contemplative moments in their life. Some of you are like, my dog. He thinks about human suffering a lot. I just know he does. He wonders about the existence of eternity. I mean, he's like, no, they don't. Some of you are like, I watch a thing on dolphins. They're very social. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I looked, I was like, I was like, I was trying to look up some of these like higher animals and stuff. And I'm like watching the savagery with the way they, like they can't put, I just, I just read this this week. You can't put <laughs> a dolphin of a different breed at like SeaWorld. Of course, SeaWorld's got a little bit of heat going right now because of their other stuff. But you can't put a dolphin of a different breed other than a bottlenose dolphin with bottlenose dolphins because they'll, they'll like just gang up on it. They'll even, I'm not even kidding you, about, they'll, they will gang, this is, sorry for the term, they will gang rape another dolphin just as a display of power. I mean, yay animal world. I mean, like, you know, like, what, what, I mean, this is like, I just want you to understand, this is where we are. Like, we are not that, and we are not angels. Meaning we have desires, but they are not necessarily guiding everything about us. They do not make us who we are. We are not the sum total of our desires. We have the ability to resist our desires, even when it's difficult. But that's contrary to the way the world functions. Maybe you heard this song recently. It's right here. Such a good song. It's a little slow fade into the song here. It's coming up. Do we have it or no? I'm looking up at the booth. It's abandoned. I can't sing it. I, I would sing it, but... girl from Ipanema goes walking in when she's walking. Uh, is that not happening? Uh, this is really important. This is like the, this is the thing. We needed this. I'm looking up there. Can we play the song? Okay, here we go. Heard this? Oh, I never heard this song. I don't listen to this music. Turn it up a little louder. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. Oh, 
know none of you have heard that song. So, I mean, and I haven't either. Um, <laughs> baby, it is, you're, you're an animal. It is in your nature. The poetry is unbelievable. Let me liberate you. He tried to domesticate you, but you're an animal. It's in your nature. Let me liberate you. I mean, this is like, you know, and that's, a, that's like, that song is on, I mean, it's, I think it's on the, like one of the dance games my kids have for the Wii. And I'm like, this is a great, oh my gosh, the lyrics are there. Okay, <laughs> this is awesome. Go ahead, five-year-old dancing with me. This is so fun. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the ethic in the song is you're captive because your desires aren't being unleashed because you're an animal. And I'm the one who can liberate you. How gracious of me. The captivity has ended. Come and follow me. Go be with me right now. Let me just tell you, if your desires are, the, are everything that you, that having all of your desires, having them all rush upon you at one moment, if you imagine that to be freedom, liberation, you've got it all wrong. That's captivity. And we are not animals. And we are not angels. There is a part of our animal nature, which is, you know, that's part of us. We're somewhere in between there. We have a body that is married to this spiritual component of our lives, which are intermingled, which means the desires of our body are reflected in the needs of our soul and vice versa. So we long for things. In a world with, with no really non, non-spiritual reality, the best you can hope for probably is a sexual experience. If there's no other reality than the, the most all-encompassing whole self experience with another person that feels a little bit transcendent, it's got to be sex. People longing for sex are longing for something deeper in their lives that they can't put their finger on because it seems so unapproachable. You are not animals. You are not angels. Back to the well. Jesus is having this conversation with this woman. This is as sexual of a conversation as a man could ever have with a woman, basically, who's not his own wife. I mean, this is so scandalous. And he's revealed all these things to her about her own life, about her own thirst, about her own desire for meaningful connection in life. And then he tells her about all these things that are coming. He says this. This isn't your outline, but she just says, the woman said, verses verse 25, I know that Messiah, called Christ, Christ is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Meshiach or Messiah, is coming. When he comes, I'll, he'll explain, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. The one you've been looking for, all this person who's supposed to sort out, even the, the Samaritans have different religious practices than the Jews a little bit, so they're trying to figure that stuff out. And she says, someone called the Messiah is going to reveal everything. And he says, I'm the guy. I'm right here. What you've been looking for is right here. Then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? By now the disciples, even early on in Jesus' ministry, seem to kind of, although they stumble over this a few times, they kind of know, like, don't ask Jesus why he's doing something that's, like, socially not allowed. You're just going to get verbally slapped in the face. You know, like, just no. John, by the way, John's a guy who, <laughs> some of you guys know this, in his own, his own account, this is his writing, his, he keeps referring to himself as who? The one, the one Jesus loved. Constantly he refers to himself like that. He's trying to be anonymous, but it's so obvious all the time what he's talking about. 
and the one Jesus loved, whatever. It's like, okay. So you know he's probably wrestling with this question, but he doesn't ask it because he's not supposed to. But nobody asked the question, just covering my bases, because people should have asked the question, but nobody did. What do you want or why are you talking with her? Nobody asked that question. They know better now. Verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. Leave that on the screen for a second. This is critical, and it's subtle. There's a woman who has come to the well in the heat of the day to gather water. She's abundantly thirsty. She shows up there with her bucket to get water from the well. She has a conversation with Jesus who reveals himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. He talks about living water. And she, in that moment, leaves her bucket and goes back to the town. Which means she's no longer thirsty. There is a deeper need of her soul which is being talked about here, which is being addressed. Jesus has talked about the thing which is most publicly shaming for her. It's a privately held life that she's lived that is being publicly exposed to Jesus in that moment, in that space. And he holds it sacredly. She determines at that moment, after he reveals who he is, that she's no longer thirsty. And she runs back to the town. The town is the people who have shamed her and said, you don't get to be with us. Somehow something has happened in her soul. The very people who said, we don't want you, you're on your own, get out, go, by the, go to the well by yourself, you're not welcome here. She runs back to those people. She leaves her water, leaves her bucket, and goes back to the town. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see... A man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now she goes back to the town and says, you guys, this is the greatest moment. This guy revealed to me everything that was privately held as shameful and disgraceful. Isn't that great news? Wait. He revealed everything? That, I mean, I don't know if I... That's good? Because Jesus is holding the vulnerability of a human being right there in a kind of sacredness that other human beings tend to mess up. And she saw that as good. And she runs to the town, the town of her own shame, and says, you guys got to come out here. This is so great. Skipping down a little bit. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Which is, we can capture that again. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard it for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What did he do? We know he's the savior of the world. We don't know what he said exactly. There's a couple of things we don't know. Let me tell you a couple of things we don't know. We don't know if he ever, what, what, there's no conversation in, the, in this particular passage about how Jesus corrects this woman's behavior. We don't have that passage. Jesus does speak openly about how marriage should be and all kinds of stuff, other places. But he doesn't hear. She's, she meets the Messiah. The inner thirst of her life is somehow being acknowledged and met. And she leaves the bucket and runs back to the town. The people hang out with her. And Jesus does this other crazy thing that nobody does. Remember, the, the Jews don't eat the dishes that Samaritans use. And now he's going to be in there with the disciples. These you know, disciples are generally believed to be pretty young guys, like high school age guys, generally. So he's going to take these guys, he's going to take them into these homes of the Samaritans, and they're going to eat their food and use their plates. 
and live in their house for a night. That's, that's gross. There's this overlapping of people who are these social outcasts, the ones who are not wanted socially, and the ones who are not wanted from a, a different kind of side of the social spectrum, which is that religious side of things. And Jesus and his disciples keep walking into those relationships with those people and saying, there's an inner thirst in your life that is not being met. I want you to understand what you're actually looking for and what you're actually thirsting for, and it's me. See, I just wanted, there's something you have to get before we frame up for next week, because next week's going to get a little bit more technical and a little bit more, like, we're going to be a little more specific. But I want you to understand something. We know that sex matters. We know that it's bigger than simply a physical act, despite what the world might say to you. And I want you to understand, in this picture of what you get in Jesus here, is that Jesus, his own, God's very presence is in and among people who are outside of God's preference for their lives. It's very clear. And I, want you to, I want you to understand this thing. On your outline, you have a little, you have three words at the back of your outline. It says God, identity, and behavior. And I want you to understand this because it will really shape the way we talk about stuff. First is this. You have to know this before I go into this. Every single person in here, in this room, you, in your life, live outside of God's preference for your life in small ways and in huge ways. Just want to let you know, you all do. And if I was to say only people that live according to God's preferred life are welcome to be here on Sunday mornings, I would be all by myself. <laughs> no, you'd have no pastor. There'd be nobody here. Nobody could work here. Nobody would be allowed to be here. There'd be no anything. There'd be no, I mean, one of the things that marks people who belong to Jesus is this forgiveness. Well, you can't even have forgiveness unless people are doing stuff that makes you upset. People live outside of God's preferred life for them. And I want to give you just a picture of what that looks like. And it might mess with you a little bit. Some of you are going to be like, wait, 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 wait a second. I don't know what he's saying here. I want, I don't get it. And I'm okay with you being messed with. Remember, this is, there's no bow here. So here's what you get. God, identity. I'm sorry, yeah. Let's put God over here. God, identity, behavior. Relationships are fundamentally an outpouring of our own identity. How we see ourselves, how we see other people. How we believe ourselves to be in the world. Out of our identity, which is made up of a number of things. Lots of things shape our identity. Our family of origin, our race, our language, behaviors we inherited, bad things that have happened to us, great things that have happened to us, people that were supposed to love us that did or did not, or whatever else it is, our own impression about um, how people should work in the world, about gender, about uh, sexuality, all of those things are part of our identity. And out of that identity, whatever that is, and I'll, get, I'll come back to it in a second, whatever our identity is, out of that comes something we would just call behavior, how we do stuff. However we do stuff, that's behavior. And it's born out of our identity. Now, some people believe, some people in this church, some people who have had past experiences with church, they approach God this way, which says, if I can right the ship of my behavior, I can get everything kind of lined up, doing it right, everything's perfect, I do everything I'm supposed to do, there's only a few little indulgences, but most of the time I'm pretty much awesome, then I will be counted as someone who is a right person, who is then welcome with God. Most people have the impression if I get my behavior all together, I'll then be counted as a righteous person and God will welcome me in his presence. But when I don't have everything together, God doesn't want me. It's funny when I talk, it's, it's, I mean, it's tragic comic. I mean, when I see people sometimes at the door and they'll come up to me and they'll say, they'll just have this shamed look on their face. Like, I know what they did. 
I have no idea. Like, the angels have told me what you've done. <laughs> I wrote it down. Is this you? You know, like, is your name Bob? Look at that. You know, I don't, I don't have, I mean, there's nothing like that. But they look like, I, they look at me like, you know what I did, don't you? And I don't know. Just so you know, I don't know what you did. And there also is this, I haven't been here for, for a couple of weeks or months or whatever. And I just, I'm just, and it's like, you know. I mean, honestly, I, I wish I could tell you that I take role every week and just know everybody like, oh, let's see, that's not in their seat this week. Someone sat in their seat. I wonder where they, oh, there they are. Like, I don't know. I honestly don't remember when I talked to you over the, I mean, sorry if it's not that person, but I just don't always know. And there's a sense that says, I can tell what's going on in your mind. At least is, I did something you, don't, you, you, you probably know about. It. I can tell because, you know, God told you what I did. I don't know. But I can tell that you have that experience of tension. And you're afraid to be here because you're afraid to be at church because you're afraid God won't want you here. Because you're not worthy to be in here. If this story is anything, especially when it comes to sex and thirst and all whatever that looks like, if this story tells us anything, which is consistent throughout Jesus' ministry, is that God says, come to me in Jesus. Every single person, I don't care how messed up that you think you are or how badly you've been treated by the religious community, you come to me first. I will shape your identity Because we can't believe that God would be with us and just go simply like, everything you're doing is wonderful, rubber stamp, I'm with you in it. That's not, the Bible isn't like that. The Bible keeps calling people to change. But the only obstacle we want to God is to be Jesus himself. If people are like, I just don't, I can't trust Jesus, I don't like him, he's a liar, and he's just, I don't like him. Okay. But let that be the only obstacle. The only obstacle we want to ever to have anybody for, in their access to God is their own, is the one that God puts for them. Not what the church creates. The church is commissioned to introduce people to Jesus wherever that they are, with love and compassion and grace and goodness. It is our identity which falls under that reality of being with God. And it is God who shapes our identity which influences and shapes our behavior. That is the church. There are very, very, very few things that would ever keep someone who is not with God from the church. I mean, there's like, you have to be predatory and violent and divisive before we go. You can't, sorry, you can't come in here. Starts with access to God who shapes our identity, which influences our behavior. God does not want to leave us the same way he found us. But it is God's work through the power of the Holy Spirit in shaping our identity and then our behavior. When we talk next week, we're going to talk about some behavior stuff. But if you miss this, which I just said, it will not make sense. One of the things, I, I wrote this down this week, I was thinking about it. God's intention is not to alter our behavior so that we can have access to him. It is to give us access to him so that our behavior can be altered. Does that make sense? This is what we're about when we talk about stuff. It should be, it's going to be a great weekend next week and next Sunday. But I want to do this. Why don't you do this? Close your eyes for a moment. We're going to pray and we're going to get a chance to respond. Jesus, we are aware that we are, like we said, even as we started the service, that we are a work in progress. All of us have all kinds of sexual hang-ups. You even saw in the video talking about fight night of all those married couples that are still going, wow, everything didn't get answered in marriage. And the big things we're talking about are sex and money. I mean, sex is right there. It's still there. Father, some of us have a story, a story of shame. Others Others of us have a story of exploitation. Being the exploiters, others being the exploited. Jesus, we acknowledge that you hold us and our nakedness, our vulnerability sacred. 
that you do not run away from us, but that you intend to reshape and remold us to more and more of your image. God, we have so many questions. And we need you, Jesus. Sisters, you're sitting there. Some of you need to come forward in a moment for prayer. Some of you will just need to write some stuff down. But the physical act of getting up is it, in and of itself, it's a vulnerable act. It is, in some ways, it's like coming to the well. Some of you need to write a prayer down. Some of you need to pray with some of the people on our staff who will not shame you, who will hold your, vulnerable, your vulnerability sacred and will pray for you. But we'll get a chance now in a moment to respond in, in singing to the God who says, I come to people who are living outside of my preferred life for them, that they might know my presence and they might know their real, true identity, the thirst of their soul might be met. And so we sing. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we sing. Amen.